Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When the great civil rights leader, Reverend C.T. Vivian, died last year, a New York Times obituary described him as a paladin of nonviolence on the front lines of bloody confrontations. Though his name isn't as widely known as that of other civil rights leaders, C.T. Vivian was among Dr. Martin Luther King's closest advisors. Before his death last July, Reverend Vivian worked on writing his life story with Steve Pfeiffer. Later this hour, we'll listen back to an interview about C.T. Vivian's memoir, It's in the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. First, the word collision usually connotes something unwelcome, unless it's the Palevsky Collision Project from the Alliance Theater. Atlanta Poet Laureate and Alliance Theater, distinguished playwright-in-residence Pearl Clegg has led the project for 11 years. She joins us now via Zoom. Pearl, welcome back to City Lights. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, for those unfamiliar with the Pilevsky Collision Project, how would you describe it? Well, I would say that collision usually means something bad happening. But for the Pileski Collision Project, what we're talking about is young people colliding with great works of art, all different kinds, musical, literary, theatrical, but colliding with those ideas and being able to look at them through a basic text and then to create a new piece of their own based on their reactions to the ideas they find, to how they integrate those ideas into what their lives feel like right now. So we spend three weeks together um, with 20 amazing young people from around the metro area. And they write and they do all kinds of workshops with wonderful artists from Atlanta. And then at the end of our first two weeks, I take everything that they've written and I put it together kind of like a quilt, a mosaic of all of their ideas and thoughts. And I don't write any of it. I shape it, but it's really their ideas and all of their writing. And what it ends up being is a conversation 
between these 20 young people and the audience, the people who are coming to see what it's like to be 17, 18 years old in 2021. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the program. Would you talk about why it was initially created? Susan Booth, our artistic director at the Alliance, created it soon after she arrived because she looked around and she realized there were many creative programs at the Alliance, but nothing specifically directed at teenagers. And she really wanted to make sure that we don't lose that audience between the middle school moment where people make you go to the theater and the moment when you're an adult and you choose to go to the theater, that she wanted to make sure we kept them engaged and interested in the theatrical world during their high school years. So she created this program specifically to bring together teenagers who don't know each other, to introduce them to some ideas that they might not have thought about, and then to kind of guide them into how to think about putting an idea into an artistic work. And this is our 20th year. I've been doing the project with Patrick McCullery and Rodney Williams, our stage manager, Patrick McCullery is our amazing director, and the three of us have been together doing it for 11 years. Rodney has been doing it for 19. Wow. So we're, we're getting up there. Oh, but oh, how fortunate these kids are to have the likes of you. Pearl, your range of topics is so impressive. And these subjects are wide-ranging. You've covered the Declaration of Independence, the Grapes of Wrath, March by John Lewis. Please tell us about this year's subject for Collision. We're so excited because we've never used a piece of music as our basic text before. We always have something that animates our our discussion and our time together, but we've never used a piece of music. And this year we are helping to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Marvin Gaye's amazing album, What's Going On? And that is our text for the Pulaski Collision Project 2021. And I don't think you could find a better piece of work to let these young people collide with than this one. It's an amazing artistic achievement, and it looks at so many things that we're still grappling with. Racial justice, war and peace, urban poverty, drug addiction, the environment, all of those things that Marvin Gaye was talking about in 1971, and they're still very relevant. excited about exposing many of these young people to this work because they haven't heard it Um, and then seeing what they think about it, how they translate it, what they think is going on at this moment. The relevance is sad. The relevance is tragic. Like to think 50 years later that enough has changed so that this could be a historical document. Could you talk about why it feels as though Marvin Gaye is singing about something that is recent. Well, I think that 
um, he had had such a wonderful career in music. He had been a crooner. I mean, I'm from Detroit and my high school was two blocks down the street from Motown. So we were ah. always trying to run down there and see if Marvin was coming out or if the Temptations were there, or, you know, all of those things, because he was like a heartthrob. He was so amazing and romantic and wonderful. And then he really started uh, becoming aware of how the outside world was impacting on him and his family when his brother went to Vietnam and he started thinking about the war. And from that kind of experience, just hearing his brother talk about the war, looking at what was going on, living through the riots in Detroit, he was all of a sudden allowing himself to open up artistically to the world. And it really, I think, touched something in him that he had not been accessing before. Can't find no work, can't find no job, my friend. Money is tighter than it's ever been. Say, man, I just don't understand what's going on across this land. Oh, what's happening, brother? Yeah. What's happening? What's happening, my friend? And as an artist, I'm so in awe of that because he had to really think to figure out what he thought, what he saw, and then have the courage to talk about it. Some of the songs on this album are, are really harrowing. There's several about drug addiction and poverty, and it doesn't just talk about what that is. It talks about why that is, which is one of the reasons I think this record, this album is so profound, because it tries to look at why things happen. The ability to take us to that moment, which is so fraught politically, and also bring forward something that is so beautiful musically is really an amazing achievement. And indeed, it marked such a transformation in his own artistic style. It's almost as though, I don't want to say the joy of Motown was overshadowed by the seriousness of world events. I think that's what Barry Gordy was worried about, that that would be um, something that would impact the Motown brand in a way that people didn't want. But he realized he was wrong about that, that the same people who were listening to Marvin Gaye sing Stubborn Kind of Fella also were open to him singing about everything that we already knew. It wasn't like he was telling us something that we didn't see and feel and live all around us, which meant that we didn't feel like this was something sad and terrible. We felt like it was certainly something challenging. But it's also that moment where you realize that the work I'm doing is helping people get free. The work I'm doing is helping people understand the world around them and their place in it. And while it doesn't always make you feel, you know, the same way that the romantic records feel, it does make you feel that you are empowered that someone who is a major artist is seeing who 
your eyes and recording back for you what you saw and validating it in that way. And the other thing is, you know, we used to dance to this music. It would be really serious music, but we'd be dancing and, and you know, all of that singing along with it. So I think it's that wonderful overlay of absolutely serious subject matter and such beauty, such rhythm, such yes. a layered, multi-layered piece of music that you, you know, you can't help but dance to it. So it's a, it's kind of complicated in that way. You know, can I really dance to an anti-war song? You know, can I really dance to a song that's talking to me about the horrors of war? It's something that we didn't really question, I think, because it brought forward everything, the dancing part and the thinking part, which is why Marvin's a genius. Uh. Gosh, yes. Well, Pearl, for listeners who may not know, we share this love of Motown up there with Mozart. This must be interesting for you. I'm curious to know about how you feel teaching these songs and this music as historical subjects rather than something we were just <laughs> it's very difficult Lois I really had a had a moment when I felt like I couldn't do it because you know this is 1971 I was in my early 20s in 1971 so that I was living this feeling this I had grown up in Detroit all of that was in me I was an anti-war activist I was a women's rights activist so all of that was my real life and then realizing that these young people, that was 50 years ago to them. They've never heard this music. They aren't living it in the way that I lived it. And I realized I was so protective of it that I wasn't going to be able to share it. And my husband, Zarin, you know, Zarin, said, you know, you have to think of this as a part of the American song book. Think of this as someone encountering Cole Porter, because he knows I love Ella Fitzgerald singing Cole Porter. He said, think of this as you're introducing them to the Marvin Gaye songbook. And that kind of freed me to stop feeling so protective and saying, you know, they don't understand. They don't even know what it was like. It's like, of course they don't. They weren't even a gleam in their mama's eye. They don't know <laughs> any of that. And I can't hold that against them. What I have to do is show them what we think is important about this particular piece of music and then guide them into understanding why we think it's important for them 50 years later to look at it. Because when you, you think about it in 1971, I was loving what's going on. And you know what was the music that people were listening to 50 years before that? I had no idea, was not interested in Scott Joplin and ragtime and all of those things. And in the same way, they don't have Marvin Gaye in their day-to-day -day life. But by the time they finish the Polevsky Collision Project, they're going to be singing what's going on just the way we were. <laughs> Maybe we could have a little Motown dance party. Although <laughs> exactly. I should ask, Pearl, will this be in person? Yes, we are following all protocols for safety. Our young participants will be masked always, even in the performance, and the audience will be socially distanced and masked. And that's not true of everything that's going on at the Woodruff, but for us, that's the way we're going to do it. And it's, you know, not something we ever would have thought we would have 20 young people on the stage, you know, trying to figure out how to sing and be heard and talk and be heard through masks. But I think that's part of what it means to be an artist working at this very 
important transitional time for our country that you cannot ever not acknowledge that we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And I think even seeing bright young performers full of hope for the future performing in masks helps all of us question, how did it come to this? How did we give them a world where they have to stand on the stage and sing from the joy of being an adolescent, discovering your gifts behind a mask? And they'll think about it too. So that in a sense, it's challenging, but it's also part of the work we do because we're always trying to say, look at the world, look at the world and make it better. Send them out into the world, not to say everything is awful, but we try to send them out into the world saying there are some things that need to be fixed and we are the powerful young people can fix it. Atlanta Poet Laureate and Alliance Theater Distinguished Playwright-in-Residence Pearl Clegg leads the Palevsky Collision Project. You can learn more about the project on our website wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we remember the civil rights hero, Reverend C.T. Vivian. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The basis of all human rights today is the result of a movement that moved all of us. The lives and lifestyle of almost everyone in America today, regardless of color, was formed or decided by their action or reaction to the Civil Rights Movement as led and declared by Martin Luther King, Jr. Those words were written by Reverend C.T. Vivian, one of the Freedom Riders and an important leader of the Civil Rights Movement who died last July at age 95. His memoir, It's in the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior, was co-written with Steve Pfeiffer, who joins us now via Zoom. Steve, welcome to City Lights. I'm happy to be here, Lois. Please tell us how you came to collaborate on this memoir. Well, in around 2014, I was working on another civil rights-related book, called Jimmy Lee and James. And that's a book about Jimmy Lee Jackson, a black farmer from Marion, Alabama, and Reverend James Reeb, a white Unitarian minister who was working in Boston at the time, 
each of whom were uh, killed within a couple of weeks of each other in February and March of 1965 as they were foot soldiers in the voting rights movement at the time. And as you know, Reverend Vivian was in Selma and Marion, Alabama during that period of time, working tirelessly to register people to vote and work for national voting rights legislation. And he was intimately involved, particularly with the life of Jimmy Lee Jackson. So I called him in Atlanta to interview him about what he remembered from that February of 1965, because he had actually spoken to a gathering at a church right before Jimmy Lee Jackson was shot to death by a white state trooper. And we hit it off over the telephone during this interview. He called me Doc. Now, I was <laughs> so flattered because here was one of my civil rights heroes speaking so intimately to me. I later learned he called everyone Doc, so it wasn't quite as special as I thought. But we, we developed a really nice relationship over the telephone, over a couple of interviews. And then I realized that here was this man who was 90 years old, had played such an important role in the civil rights movement and beyond. He was a real visionary. And uh, he had never written a memoir. So I approached him about doing this. And it, it he was busy. I was busy. So it took a couple of years before we actually started working on it. But that's how it all materialized. Hmm. Though essential to the civil rights movement and a tireless activist, C.T.'s name is not as widely known as some of the other leaders of the movement. Would you give us some background on his early life and career? Sure. He was born in 1924 in Boonville, Missouri, a very small town. And at that time, he lived with his mother and his grandmother, both of whom felt very strongly about two things, education and the church. And from a very early age, at his grandmother's knee, he was taught to read and learn about, as they call them, black men of mark, people that we might not know about, but who had made a real difference in African-American history. And he was also taken to the church in Boonville at that time, which he really loved. And that's where he developed both his love of education and the church. When uh, he was about five or six years old, their house was burned down by a, a neighbor who was looking for his common law wife, who was staying with the Vivians, and the family moved to Macomb, Illinois, which is in Western Illinois. And the reason they chose Macomb was because the schools were integrated there, although the black population was small, and because there was a university there. And that was very important to them because they wanted CT to go to college. So he grew up in Macomb, and it was kind of a, a mixed childhood. He had a lot of wonderful white friends who wanted to include him in a lot of things, but they were often stymied by their parents. And the school itself, particularly as it got to 
high school, he would be told by a teacher, you won the role as the lead in the class play, but because you're black, all you can do is paint sets. So he was exposed to institutional and uh, social racism at that time, went to Western Illinois University in, uh, in town, and again, excelled in many things, but wasn't allowed to be in certain clubs because of his skin color, ended up leaving university and settled in Peoria in the mid-1940s, where he got involved really for the first time in the civil rights movement with sit-ins in as early as 1947. Yeah. So that's the kind of early part, taking him up into his early 20s. I smiled imagining a 94-year-old reminiscing with you about his third and fourth grade experiences. He makes the point that his true understanding of nonviolence came in the fourth grade. Right. He was a fighter. There were some bullies in his class. There were some white bullies and black bullies that, uh, that he confronted, some of whom used the N-word against him, and he became a fighter. And at some point, he just realized that that was not the best way to handle conflict. And when he was just about the age you were talking about, Lois, he told his buddies, who also were kind of fighters, look, we're getting older, <laughs> but this is not the way to solve our problems. And really, from that point forward, it was action of a nonviolent manner rather than the confrontational using your fists that he expressed himself with the rest of his life. And at 94, he vividly remembered what happened in third and fourth grade, as he told you. Right. He, he also had a, a great story about something that had actually happened a little earlier when he had been out playing uh, in his yard and he thought he saw a ghost and he started to move forwards towards it and his instincts told him he shouldn't he shouldn't approach the ghost but he kept going forward anyway and when he got to what he thought was the ghost it turned out to just be some laundry some sheets that his uh, mother had hung out on the laundry line but it was a lesson he said that taught him that you don't run away from something that scares you you confront it. And he said that that actually served him throughout his life and was something he actually remembered when he had what is an iconic confrontation in the history of the civil rights movement with Sheriff Jim Clark in 1965 on the courthouse steps in Selma. Yes. You write, he could tell a story or tell off a racist antagonist with equal poetry. And Andy Young said he could turn a phrase like he could turn a cheek. Would you talk about the importance of books, of poetry in Vivian's life? I'm glad you asked me that, Lois, because even though the title of the book and his credo was it's in the action. In addition to being a man of action, he was a man of words. 
And as you hint, books were extremely important to him from an early age when, as I said, his grandmother exposed him to the first book he remembered, Men of Mark. And he began at a very early age collecting books that were important to the African-American experience. And by the time of his death last year, he had accumulated some 6,000 volumes dating back all the way to uh, colonial times and had some real treasures in there. Some of the earliest works by the should-be-known better African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley. He had, I think, a second edition of, of her first book and uh, many other very important works. He also was, as you suggest, a great lover of poetry, Claude McKay, Langston Hughes, and he was very able to quote their poetry. And that love of literature, that love of words, that love of poetry, I think translated into his own ability to move people with his own words. And as I'm sure you know, Dr. King called him the greatest preacher who ever lived. Steve, what do you think made Reverend C.T. Vivian such an extraordinary man of faith? He was, as I say, exposed to the church at a very early age and felt perhaps the greatest sense of community there that he felt anywhere, particularly in times when outside of the kind of safety of the black church, you were exposed to the kind of racism we talked earlier about in school and in the community at large. There was a safety in the in the church. He loved the ceremony. The early church he was in singing was so important. And he talked about the role of song always. And I think that he came to believe that the Black church was really the launching pad for movement in general, and that if there hadn't been a separate Black church from the white church, which was for reasons of segregation primarily during that period of his formative years, that there wouldn't have been the ability for this community to come together, marshal its strength and energy to launch a movement. You mentioned his early work in Peoria, Illinois, that eventually led to civil rights activism in Nashville. How did the teachings of Gandhi inform CT's workshops on nonviolent resistance? Lois, I like to say that Nashville in 1960 was, if anyone wants to do the post-Hamilton musical, they should do Nashville 1960. There's a line in Hamilton early on where Alexander Hamilton marvels that all these amazing people are all in one spot in New York, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, Burr, etc. Nashville 1960 was exactly the same thing, but it was the civil rights movement, a group of great thinkers and, I would argue, revolutionaries. C.T. Vivian, Diane Nash, James Bevel, 
Marion Barry, John Lewis, Bernard Lafayette, and others. And they took workshops from James Lawson, who had been in India and had studied the teaching of Gandhi. They all were taking workshops in nonviolence from Jim Lawson, who was bringing them directly the teachings of Gandhi. And so there'd be these folks that were at these workshops that were learning how to put nonviolent direct action into practice. And they had these exercises in the workshops where they actually would be confronted with violence directed at them, and they had to kind of learn how not to react as most of us would react to someone physically abusing them by using the phrase we used a little earlier, turning the other cheek. So they actually had exercises in these workshops where someone would put a burning cigarette on their clothing and they had to react, learn to react in a nonviolent way or push them around or learn how to protect themselves if they were on the ground. And so in addition to this kind of physical training that they were going through, almost behavioral training, you might say, they were also learning the importance of the philosophy of nonviolent direct action. And what strikes me in so many of the situations that Dr. Vivian spoke about and Diane Nash has spoken about is that even when confronted with evil and abuse, and it seems like maybe you should turn back, you don't. It's almost like CT's experience of going towards those sheets on the laundry line early on, but you cannot back down. When Jim Clark pushes you down the stairs, you have to get up and go and confront that evil. When the Freedom Riders are beaten, they may turn around for a day, but then they get back on the buses and move forward. And that all stemmed from the training in those early workshops in Nashville led by Jim Lawson. I love that part of the book where Lin-Manuel Miranda's song from Hamilton is invoked. Did Reverend Vivian bring that up? No, that's a that's collaborator's license. Okay. C.T. Vivian makes the point that Movements need more than justifiable anger. There needs to be strategy and a goal. How did this understanding of being methodical and organized help advance his goals? That's a really strong point that you bring up, Lois, because I think in looking at the contemporary situation as we were working on the book, one of I mean, he was very supportive of, uh, of the movements that were Black Lives Matter and, and other movements that, that were going on at the time. He felt that one of the, the weaknesses, though, of those movements was that there wasn't a kind of centralized strategy. He was so respectful, so taken with the leadership of Dr. King, that I think he really wished 
that contemporary movements had strong centralized leadership and strategic thinking as opposed to being a little diffused. Now, even in the couple of years since we had those discussions, an argument can be made that, you know, people like Stacey Abrams and and others who have emerged and that in the various pods of uh, activism right now, there is strategy and leadership moving things forward despite the difficulties. But he felt that organization was necessary to keep your eyes on the prize and that diverting from the ultimate goal would only weaken the effort. Author Steve Pfeiffer speaking about the new memoir of C.T. Vivian. It's in the action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you just tuned in, I'm speaking with the author Steve Pfeiffer about the memoir of civil rights activist Reverend C.T. Vivian, who died one year ago this week. Pfeiffer helped the then 94-year-old write the book, It's in the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. Here, I ask Pfeiffer to discuss C.T. Vivian's encounter with Sheriff Clark and the horrors of Selma, Montgomery, and Birmingham. Well, the encounter with Jim Clark, the beefy sheriff of Dallas County, took place on February 15, 1965. The people of Selma and that area, Marion, Alabama, which I think is sometimes uh, a forgotten little town, but was a very important at the exact same time in, in launching this voting rights effort. They, for, for a few years, had been trying to launch uh, voter registration because they saw how important the, the vote was for Blacks to, to get anywhere. And they hadn't been getting too far, so They asked Dr. King to come to to Selma and make things happen. And the first thing he did was send Dr. Vivian there to scope things out to see if that was a, a realistic venue for launching a Voting Rights Act effort. So they knew this was gonna be an uphill battle, but they decided that Selma would be a good place to launch it after Dr. Vivian went there to scope things out, in part because often having an antagonist like a Bull Connor or a Jim Clark, where confrontation inevitably happened and that confrontation fortuitously or by design was filmed and broadcast to legislators in Washington, D.C., could have a great impact on their decision-making as to whether or not to go forward. In Selma, they had a, a group of people who wanted to register to vote, and they had the perfect antagonist 
that they could confront who really could be portrayed to most people as the face of evil. So over the course of the first six weeks or so in 1965, CT and Hosea Williams and others were leading efforts to register to vote, and they were in general being turned away at the courthouse. And on February 15th, CT led a group of about 100 people attempting to register to vote, and they marched peacefully to the courthouse. CT went up. Jim Clark and some of his deputies are standing blocking the courthouse doors, and CT speaks peacefully to Sheriff Clark about wanting to register to vote, to exercise their constitutional rights. And there are cameras around, and Clark, not wanting this confrontation to be caught on camera, tells CT to back off. And when CT doesn't, Clark pushes him down the stairs. Clark ended up breaking a finger by hitting him so hard. And CT gets up, brushes himself off, and goes right back up to Clark and talks to him about the nature of evil, about constitutional rights, about are you a Christian? He often had asked people in those situations how they could call themselves Christians and do what they were doing. And fortuitously, this confrontation is captured by network TV that happens to be there and broadcast on the evening news. And as Andy Young later said, without that confrontation having been caught, we might not have a civil rights movement. So after the camera stopped rolling and there was that confrontation, CT was arrested, put in Selma jail, and actually beaten while he was in jail. And it just was a, a very seminal moment in the movement. Yeah, one of the defining moments of the Civil Rights Act. I think Andy Young said it took a lot of courage to get in Jim Clark's face, but if he hadn't taken that blow in Selma, we would not have had the Voting Rights Act. Oh. There's another interesting element to that. Three days later, CT went to Marion, as I referenced earlier, to speak to the people, about 400 people gathered there who were going to march one block from their church to the jail where SCLC operative named James Orange was being held for silly reasons, of course. So CT spoke to that crowd. And Jim Clark, for some reason, came the 30 miles from Selma to Marion, as did vigilantes, as did state troopers. After CT got done speaking to the assembled there, he had to get back to Selma. And so he was on his way back. And then the march, led by others, came out the front of the church and that's where vigilantes and troopers were waiting for them. That's where Jimmy Lee Jackson was eventually shot by the trooper. But Jimmy Lee Jackson's death is what spurred the idea for the march from Selma to Montgomery. 
initially just a, a regular citizen said we ought to carry his body and put it on the steps for George Wallace to see his coffin. And that ended up getting adapted. But that was the impetus for the, the march. Later on, the learning that Jim Clark had been in the crowd with the with the Alabama State Troopers out of his jurisdiction, it was thought that CT may very well have been the object of the state troopers that they wanted to get him that night instead of just an ordinary citizen. That must have weighed on him in addition to the grief of this young man being murdered. Right. What amazes me, Lois, is the risks that these men and women took and were willing to take for the cause and then seeing certain of their comrades you know drop to the wayside but one thing that ct stressed and i think is sometimes overlooked is the role of the spouses in being so supportive of their in those times mostly their husbands letting them go off to risk their lives. C.T. had five or six children at the time, and he would always, I mean, he considered his wife Octavia. They were married for 58 years until her death. His partner in this, she had been a a civil rights activist before he actually was a, a civil rights activist. And every time he said, you know, I'm thinking about going on the Freedom Rides, is that okay? She always said, you go I'll stay. I take care of the family. And it's an overlooked role. It wasn't overlooked by him, but underappreciated the role that the that the wives those days played in enabling their husbands to go out and do the business of the movement. And in fact, it was Reverend Vivian's wife who wrote a biography, I believe the first biography of Coretta Scott King. Yes. They were very close. It's important in discussing his legacy to mention vision. Would you talk about that program? I'm really glad you brought that up because for some people, the civil rights movement in their minds ends with the successful passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. But there was still much to be done. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Vivian realized was that a lot of young people, high school age and college age, had taken time away from school to participate in the movement and that they needed training, education, tutoring to be able to succeed in the world of higher education. He created Vision in Alabama. It's a little parallel to Freedom Summer of 1964, but he recruited tutors from colleges in both the North and the South to come and work with high school students and some college students to better prepare them to either go back to school or to move on to higher education. And this morphed eventually into Upward Bound, which is an incredibly successful tale of offering 
educational opportunities to African-Americans and such people as Oprah Winfrey, uh, basketball player Patrick Ewing, Angela Bassett, the actress, and others all went through this program, which began as vision with 700 students in Alabama for a few years by CT. And this was not the only, excuse the pun, but visionary program that he started. He moved on a few years later to create something in conjunction with Shaw University called Seminary Without Walls. This was remote learning 50 years ago where people did not come to the campus to learn to be seminarians. They took their courses off campus in in their homes and only came to the university to take tests. So this was a man who was really a true forward thinker in every aspect of his life. You include a beautiful story that is from an article that appeared in the Daily Beast in 2014 by a former Obama staffer remembering an event in Selma in 2007. Would you talk about that? At that point, candidate Obama was in Selma for the Bloody Sunday commemoration, and he was speaking in Brown Chapel, which was the central place for the movement in Selma in the in 1965, and was the launching place for the march that became Bloody Sunday on March 7th, 1965. And Obama had been prepared by his staff to recognize certain people in the large audience that had assembled. And he looked up and what he said, look, that man way in the, in the back there, and this was not a name that was, was on the cards that he had been given by his staff. He said, that man back there, that C.T. Vivian, he was an important person, very important person in the movement. And Dr. King called him the greatest preacher that ever lived. And he went on to sing CT's praises. But I think it summarizes both men pretty well, Lois. I mean, CT, he was in his 80s. He was just sitting in the audience with everybody else, not asking for any special attention. So there's his humility. And there's the kind of expansiveness and education and appreciation of history by then-candidate Obama to realize, A, that C.T. was in the audience, and B, what an important role he had played in allowing Obama to even be a candidate for president at that time. So it's, it's really a beautiful, beautiful story. It is a beautiful story. And later, President Obama awards C.T. Vivian the Congressional Medal of Freedom. Would you tell us the meaning of the title? I recently received a copy of notes that C.T. had written for a sermon that he was going to be given. I've become very close with the Vivian family. They are absolutely wonderful. But Denise Morse, C.T.'s daughter, sent me a photocopy of his notes for a particular sermon 
And on that is written about five times just in his pen. It's in the action. It's in the action. It's in the action. Remember, it's in the action. And he always believed that despite, as we talked about earlier, his love of words, that you had to get out and take your philosophy, take your grievance, take your honorable position out into the streets or into the halls of Congress or wherever you could effect change, you had to act just talking, despite being the greatest preacher that ever lived, was not enough. It's in the action that change is made. I had found a a quote where he said, we were happy to be miserable. (laughs) We made the white community miserable during the movement, and we were miserable too. But the difference was that we were happy to be miserable. Author Steve Pfeiffer speaking about the memoir of the Reverend C.T. Vivian. It's in the action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. You can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., soul food, southern and global cooking with author, restaurateur, and chef Deborah Van Trees. City Light senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer. And our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.